Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. This is Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. I'm your host, Steve Shulwolf. And since the last time we pushed out an episode, the world has definitely changed. So before we talk about anything related to mediation or related to the law, I hope this finds you well, that you're healthy and that you're adhering to stay in place orders and trying to minimize the impact of this coronavirus pandemic on our healthcare workers. I'd be remiss. My wife is a doctor. She's a chief medical officer of a hospital. So for anybody like my wife who's out there doing their best to treat us, to find any type of cure for this, you have my utmost gratitude and thanks. You know, episode three of this podcast, we took a lighter note. My guest was Karen Carson, and Karen is a great attorney by day and a comedian by night, and we talked about how the law has difficulty regulating comedy, and in general, what role, if any, does humor have in the law, and more particularly, in mediation. That's been my most heavily downloaded episode, and there's big shoes to fill, so we've decided not to just have one guest, which is the uh, typical for the podcast, but we have the pleasure of having two outstanding guests here today. In light of the fact that COVID-19 dominates all news cycles, pretty much our collective consciousness, I thought it made sense to talk about how attorneys are reacting to COVID-19 claims generally, but more specifically, is there insurance coverage for various claims related to the many businesses throughout the country who are hurting due to the virus itself and to governmental decrees telling us to stay at home and keep our distance. And not surprisingly, those attorneys who represent policyholders might have a slightly different point of view than those who are representing insurers. So I've got two experts here with me today as a a neutral mediator. My job here today is to facilitate a, a frank conversation of what cases we might see and a little bit of a general analysis on what's already been filed. My first guest here is Frank Wise. Frank is the uh, general counsel and partner for the law firm Tonkin Torp out of Portland, Oregon. Frank's licensed in both Oregon and California, and he represents policyholders in complex insurance coverage cases. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. Morning. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Right. I, I appreciate it. Here. Great. And taking maybe the other side of uh, the coin uh, on some of these conversations today, we've got Mark Schrake. Mark is a partner at Freeman, Mathis, and Gary, where he serves as the co-chair of the firm's insurance coverage and extra contractual liability department. He has a national practice on behalf of insurers, and he's licensed in California, Minnesota, and Texas. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Hello, Frank. All right. Well, I'm 
Very happy to have you here. I can tell you, and I'm sure we all are in this situation, I get every morning emails from both the Illinois and the Texas bar, and they have little blurbs of articles from attorneys with updates on the law. And it just seems these days, 60, 70% of the articles coming in have to do with, is there insurance coverage for COVID-19 types of claims? And so there's a lot of different types of claims that I think we're ultimately going to see under CGL policies, under DNO policies, but the claims that seem to be winning the race to the courthouse. And so I thought that served as something that would be interesting for us to talk about today are the business loss claims. And I think most people agree that the first lawsuit that was filed was filed in New Orleans. The Cajun Conti uh, case, I think, involves a restaurant by the name of the Oceana Grill that operates in the French Quarter in New Orleans. And like many restaurants throughout the country have been forced to uh, close in order to comply with stay-at-home orders. And they have sued their insurers for lost business due to uh, the virus itself and to what's known as civil authority provisions in the policies. So Frank, you... uh, represent policyholders. How many people have called you, frankly, over the last two weeks asking you about various issues? I'm not asking you to divulge attorney-client communication, but just generally, I would imagine that as someone who represents policyholders, you haven't been uh, bored lately. It's been a deluge of people. I have not filed any lawsuits on behalf of anyone, but I've reviewed, I can't even, innumerable policies, because they all tend to be a little bit different, although I've gotten pretty efficient now. But yes, a overwhelming interest in the issue. And what types of questions, again, not asking you to divulge attorney-client secrets, but as a general matter, what type of things are clients in these early days of this seeking counsel on? Well, I would credit the insurance industry for doing a very good job of getting out in front of this and explaining to everybody that'll listen that these claims aren't covered. (laughs) So lots of people are calling and asking, you know, I'm being told by my broker, by my insurer that there's no coverage for this. Is that right? And I'm trying to correct that misperception that these are non-covered claims under standard commercial property insurance. That's sort of how it gets teed up. I think the folks are hearing really quickly that they don't have coverage and they want someone to verify whether that's true or not. Well, one thing that I think both of you would agree with is in general, when you're dealing with insurance coverage issues, you really have to try not to overgeneralize, especially on an issue that there might not be a lot of you know, case law on and really treat each case on a case by case basis based on the policy language. Because Frank, one thing that I have definitely heard from policyholder counsel is there are innumerable variations and iterations of exclusions, civil authority endorsements, requirements for physical loss, all things that We'll get Mark involved here and talk on uh, in a little bit, but I think it makes it challenging to overgeneralize whether there's either coverage or non-coverage because each of these claims are unique. 
Oh, that's that's certainly true, and I think you're right. Every policy has got variations. Some of them will be or will be critical, but I think you know the sort of knee-jerk denial of the claims is based on the physical loss notion that that the idea that since the COVID-19 virus doesn't destroy the structure of the building, it's not a physical loss, and therefore, I mean, the claims are getting denied on that basis, regardless of whether there's any applicable exclusions or not, it's a threshold issue with the insurers. So I think that's largely where the battle's going to be fought on these things, because obviously, at least in my mind, the law is nowhere near as resolved on that issue as the insurance carriers would like it to be. Well, the beauty of all insurance coverage disputes is that under McCarran-Ferguson, it's all state law. So we have a situation where we have a flood of new claims coming in and the identical policy language and identical facts in one jurisdiction can lead to a completely different result than another. And that, I think, unique niche of insurance coverage is one of the reasons why things like pollution or asbestos can wind up you know, being litigated over and over again across the country. But Mark, I'm going to get you involved here. Frank mentioned that the insurance industry has been pretty quick to detail why there isn't coverage for these type of claims. Specifically, Frank was bringing up physical loss, but not to put you on the spot as the representative of the entire industry, but why don't you walk us through some of the problems that a restaurant like the Oceana Grill... Mark, you're out in California, and I know Thomas Keller has employed the same law firm to file a a similar suit on behalf of French Laundry and some of his other restaurants. So let's talk a little bit about, as Frank said, there's some threshold issues that the insurance industry has pointed out as being things that are problematic for policyholders bringing these type of claims. The same lawyer who represents Cajun Conti also represents, as you mentioned, French Laundry. And there's a phrase in each of those complaints. One is filed in in uh, Orleans Parish in Louisiana. The others filed in Napa County, California Superior Court. They seek only declaratory relief. It does not appear that in either instance there has been a submitted claim or a denial. And even though the complaints seek only declaratory relief, they do include a sentence that says any effort to deny the reality that the virus causes physical damage and loss would constitute a false and potentially fraudulent misrepresentation that could endanger shareholders and the public. That's obviously a shot across the bow to make it into the newspapers. And I think the carriers, some of them have come out with formal statements. I have not seen one that says definitively what's covered and what's not. I think some of the brokers and agents have tried to handle some of the claims from some of their clients by lowering expectations. As you mentioned, different states have different approaches. And Frank, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as well. But as I see the case law across the country, the requirement of direct physical loss of or damage to property, really the state jurisdictions have broadly two different applications. One is to require an actual physical alteration of the property, something tangible that happens to the property. And then the other jurisdictions, I would think, broadly fall into there's physical, direct physical loss of or damage to it there's the presence of something on or around the property. And I think the problem here for policyholders 
to meet the threshold and for carriers who, at least in California, the carrier's job is to look to find coverage, that the case law, to the extent that it's, it's the lowered threshold of simply showing the presence of something on or around the property, that the cases that approach losses that way are dealing with an identified substance in an identified place. For instance, there, there's no doubt that it's ammonia fumes in this particular building, and it's something that can be sensed and measured. Or there's an accumulation of gasoline on the premises, which saturates everything and seeps into a particular building. You know what it is. Here, I think the actions and the data and the measurement and the presentation of what it means when we're claiming that there's physical loss of or damage to property is going to take a little bit more effort than to simply rely on somebody at the county drafting up a piece to go out in an order that characterizes the order as being based on physical damage to property because the policies are sold to ensure particular companies and relating to particular property, which is in a particular location. So it's, it's a challenge for everybody to get the right decisions on each of these claims. Well, Frank, I know you didn't write the Cajun County uh, complaint, I guess, going off of what Mark was saying, I know there's an allegation in the Cajun Conti complaint as well as the Thomas Keller complaint that this strand of virus can live for up to 28 days. And so why do you think that was important to allege and how does that impact some of the, uh, the need, as Mark pointed out, for like a particularized demonstration of physical loss at an insured premises? Sure, yeah. Pretty clearly, the Plants Council in both of those cases was trying to tee up the argument that the virus is present on surfaces in structures and that, that the presence of the virus constitutes physical loss or damage to the property and triggers coverage. You know, and both of those complaints also note that the relevant civil authorities that issued shutdown orders had specifically referenced property damage that had been suffered as a consequence of the virus as part of the justification for the shutdown, which, you know, while not probably determinative, is certainly going to be relied upon by policyholder lawyers to, to argue that this is all an outdrop out from physical damage. And I also agree, you know, I think both of you made the point that it's, it's very true that the jurisdictions that have looked at this in different states have really varied in how narrowly or broadly they view physical loss pretty dramatically. So where you live is probably going to make a difference. I'm fortunate enough to live in Oregon where, at least on, on this issue, policies are construed you know, fairly broadly, but some jurisdictions, I think Michigan has one I've seen where it's they really do almost require the structure itself to have been burned down or visibly damaged, and that's going to make a big difference. That's where California case law is right now. I will be interested to see how California applies, whether California continues to apply that standard going forward. From my perspective of my clients, I hope they do, but I'm guessing there will be a lot of pressure to not do that. I also, while we're on this, one of the lawsuits – that was filed in April, was filed in, in the District of Columbia Superior Court. And there's a restaurant out there called Proper 21. And 
their complaint actually comes up with this, I think is a third approach to applying the direct physical loss of or damage to property at the premises. They jump right to all they need to show is that there was a direct physical loss of the premises. It's not a matter of are we going to look at loss of or damage to property. We're going to look at all they need to show is there was a direct physical loss of the premises. They do have a virus exclusion, which they acknowledge would apply, but they say that it's not the virus that caused them to lose the premises. It was the order, the mayor's order. So they're just kind of jumping right past any effect on property by virtue of of anything except the government order. And I'm glad you raised that because I, I was going to throw that out as the third category of ways courts have looked at this. You're just focusing on the dis- distinction between loss and damage. You know, there's a case that's kind of helpful if you're a policyholder's lawyer out of West Virginia where uh, a homeowner's house was rendered unusable, uninhabitable because of the threat of boulders rolling down hill and hitting it. And the court there found that that was a physical loss, even though the boulders hadn't, in fact, hit the house. Just the threat of it rendered it unusable. And that's the type of argument I think folks are going to make. Well, and just to show you that everything is is jurisdictional, Mark, I when I heard the word fear, immediately I thought you potentially might be thinking of some of the uh, post-September 11 rulings that came down that talked a little bit about whether if you had a shutdown order and the cause of it was due to fear of something as opposed to a particularized threat to the insured premises that might be a, an impediment to a policyholder's claim. Is my recollection on that correct? Yes, and it, the claims I handled in those instances related to the sh- losses as a result of the shutdown of the airspace. And there were a lot of property claims made contending that the towers falling were what triggered the shutdown of the airspace, which then caused the, the business loss. And the reality was the airspace was shut down because of fear of future attacks. I don't think there was much litigation over that. I think the claims were made. And I think looking at the evidence, it was pretty clear why there was a shutdown of the airspace. There's one case, there's United Airlines case out of the Second Circuit in 06. And so they they brought a claim because Reagan National Airport was closed and they argued that the shutdown order had to do with the attack at the Pentagon, but actually the court looked at it and temporally the order was actually issued before the Pentagon was was ever struck and determined that it was more out of fear than physical damage. I think, Frank, you pointed out that some of the orders that are coming down, these stay-at-home orders, I don't know whether it's because you're you're part of the bar, had the ear of uh, folks, but you definitely see some orders that explicitly referenced property damage. I think you said that that would be helpful. Have you heard of any lobbying efforts uh, with that regard or uh, that's completely coincidental or anything you can add about that or even just talk about the impact and the importance of that type of language? Sure. Yeah. I assume that that language was not accidentally present, but I wasn't part of it. I think certainly from a policyholder's perspective, you're going to point to that as 
our business was shut down because of this order. And the order that shut us down specifically recites that it was due to property damage is going to be a, you know, a tailwind and insurance company is going to fight to try to get that excluded. But I think a pretty good argument can be made that it's relevant to, especially if you're relying on that sort of line of cases that differentiates between a loss and damage to show exactly what caused the loss. Well, as a, as a mediator, you know, one of the things that we like to point out to uh, litigants on both sides is that these actions wind up being more expensive than people, uh, I think, at the onset recognize. And one of the ways that I can see already that there's going to be expensive, and we've talked about, you know, does the virus live for 28 days? Can it adhere to certain substances? That screams to me to be a fact dispute and a battle of experts. There's a Texas case, federal case here that involved South Texas medical clinics that involved the policyholder submitting an affidavit actually by the judge who issued an evacuation order. It was a hurricane case. So Hurricane Rita was headed for Warren County and thankfully it missed. And the policyholder argued that the hurricane had hit in Florida and then damaged rigs out in the Gulf and submitted the affidavit by the judge who said he issued the order due to all the information he had, including the fact that there was already property damage that had taken place. In that case, the insurers were permitted to depose the judge, and he admitted that really he issued the order out of fear of what would happen if the uh, hurricane actually did hit in that county. And so that court followed the September 11th United Airlines case that I, I talked about. And I, I mentioned that not to advocate a position on behalf of coverage or non-coverage, but to point out that even in those cases, like the French Laundry case that cites the Napa Valley order, we might be looking at some discovery disputes, although I think there's some jurisdictions. I was a little surprised that the judge wound up being deposed because in some of the jurisdictions I've been in, that's a tough deposition to get. But if either of you could comment on, you know, the type of issues that may wind up leading to, you know, factual disputes or the type of things that I think on behalf of a client in a particular situation, you're going to recommend, look, we need to learn more about whether it's the disease or whether it's by FOIA requests on the civil authority order. And I'm sure there's other things that I'm I'm missing here. But again, as a mediator, I like to point out these things are, a lot of people think insurance coverage, it's a contract, it can be resolved pretty quickly. But it, it strikes me, the lack of case law on the exact fact patterns really opens up the door for some creative lawyers to make arguments, but usually we need discovery in order to uh, develop those arguments. Frank, what do you think about that? I, I, mean, I think you're right. I think a lot of it's going to depend on what we've been already talking about, which is what state you're in and what the courts are going to require to prove coverage. But if the court's going to require that the policyholder demonstrate that there's been some physical presence of the virus to trigger coverage, then I think that the the challenge might be, it depends on where you are. I think if you're in downtown New York, I think proving, you know, that, that either your business or if it's a civil authority claim that other property within five, 10 miles of you has been infected with the virus would be pretty easy. 
just because of how widespread it is. But if you're in remote Montana, or I don't know if Montana has got a lockdown order, but if you're in a remote part of a state where your business has been ordered shut, it may be challenging and require expert testimony and extrapolation to demonstrate that you know it's more likely than not that property in the vicinity had been infected and that was the source of or one of the sources of the shutdown. And you know it's going to take extrapolation and sampling and statistics and all that because you know at this point we haven't tested enough people that you you know you you could live in a county that's got two confirmed cases. And so you're on the insurance company side, you'll argue, you know, unless you can prove one of those two people was licking your countertops, no coverage, and the policyholder is going to have to deal with that by proving that there was, you know, it was much more widespread than is represented by the confirmed cases. That seems like an obvious issue that's going to come up. What about you, Mark? I agree with that, with both of you, I guess, that you do need to be creative in the sense that you need to expand your mind and figure out as with any property claim, what in the world happened and how do we figure out what happened? And sometimes in a weather related event, you need a meteorologist in this instance, because we don't know what property anybody's talking about, it becomes an even bigger challenge. And then I think as Frank was alluding to, you got to get the right expert out there to, unless you do have evidence of somebody actually licking a countertop and getting sick, you do need some interesting scientists that you get to work with. I was on talking with an insurance broker yesterday with a, he's with the national group and he personally has an ownership stake in, in, in a restaurant. And um, we were talking about these issues and in personally, he was of the view there's no coverage for the shutdown of his restaurant and it's located in a major metropolitan area subject to an order. And part of it was he, he just knew we, we shut down out of fear. We're, we, there's no evidence of any physical effect at all on our property or any property around us. He made a point that I have never heard anybody make, which is when you look back at the Spanish flu, it came in a second and a third wave. And there's literature that says that the current coronavirus is going to come in a second and maybe a third wave. And the broker I was talking to suggested that on the second wave, it'll be a lot easier to make these evidentiary points because he suspects that it will be a, he suspects maybe even too strong. He's guessing that the second wave would be even a more vicious strain of the virus and that a restaurant will in fact be able to say two or three people who are in my restaurant on this night now have the virus. Well, I hope he's wrong about uh, second and third waves, but unfortunately, I think in talking with people in the, the medical field, I think that's unfortunately something uh, that's going to happen. And I think one thing, and I don't mean us to digress into a, a different road, but I think it does demonstrate as well the other type of claims that we don't have time to talk about on, on this particular podcast, but that I think are likely going to be filed. You know, when I heard you talking to an owner of a restaurant who thinks that there might be, you know, second waves, it also strikes me as the claims that are going to be made against hotels, restaurants, we've seen them against cruise ships, a development of a new standard of care. And under CGL policies, I think that's going to raise some host of issues on duty to defend, you know, as well. But I don't mean to put us down that rabbit hole. I did have one, you know, follow up. I think, Frank, you had mentioned when we were talking about this physical loss and we're talking about how hard or easy it's going to be to show 
something from a, a factual basis. And you, you mentioned, look, in New York, when you have the density there, it should be a lot easier to demonstrate that there was uh, the virus either at the insured premises or, you know, within a reasonable proximity. But I guess that raises, you know, I'll throw this back to Mark, whether that's something the carriers are going to go along with in the sense of when we've talked about particularized loss or damage, are policyholders going to be able to satisfy that somehow by like a statistical model? You know, look, you know, here's how many patients there were in local hospitals. The shutdown order came down. How absent the licking of the countertop example, are there ways that you think courts and again, I think different courts are going to treat this differently, are going to look at what that burden is. Because I assume, Mark, you would be taking the position that the policyholder would have the initial burden of demonstrating you know, physical loss. We talked about hiring experts, but what are the experts going to need to be able to say? Uh, are they going to have to say, would it be that the particular premises was contaminated or how do you see that playing out? And I know that's a that's a loaded question because I think it's going to be answered in different ways throughout the country. Yes, it's loaded. I would advocate for this and I think there's a lot of support in the law and, and the jurisprudence. The policy was sold with respect to a particular item of property or something identifiable as you put your hands on and it's based on other property and where it sits in some respects. And the evidence is going to have to show, regardless of the standard that's applied, whether it's something on the property or some tangible physical alteration of the property, I think at a minimum, we're going to have to have evidence as to what property we're talking about and what it is that was either done to that property or that is sitting on that property. And as I mentioned at the beginning, the gasoline underneath the building I can't remember the state, but saturated the property and made the building unusable. You knew what the chemical was and you knew what the building was. And I haven't seen anything identifying any of that with respect to this virus. And we do have way too many deaths in all of our areas of the United States. Some of them are in more concentrated areas. And I spend a lot of time looking at numbers. I live in Los Angeles. I live in a particular part of Los Angeles. And when I look at total numbers. It's devastating when I try to make myself feel better about my own risk. I start looking at percentages, meaning number of people affected versus number of people live in the county. And then I, I can't yet narrow it to my own neighborhood. But even, even just walking around my own neighborhood, if I knew 100 people had it, I still wouldn't, I'd still be hard pressed to, to determine which piece of property this thing was sitting on. And whether the way people travel, whether, whether it was contracted even anywhere around the vicinity of where we are. And the other part is most of the literature I see talks about it's person to person and not property to person. I think the policy was sold for a particular piece of property and I don't see any literature or reports or speculation that it's anything that's tied to a particular piece of property. Well, Frank, I don't expect you to agree with that completely, but I guess more specifically to what types of evidence or what do you think a policyholder can do? Because I think we've got a weird situation, right? There could have been, whether there was, let's say the virus as Cajun Conti, it can exist for 28 days. I know there's the science is evolving and, and I don't think we really know how long, but let's assume that there's a period of time in which a virus could have been on a countertop. But by the time we litigate this, 
uh, I think everybody would agree that it's not there anymore. So how do you make your case as a policyholder in light of some of the issues that Mark was raising? Yeah, and again, with the caveat, that it's just going to depend on the jurisdiction, how much they're going to require proof of this, you know, if they focus more on damage and less on loss, and that sort of thing. I agree that there's going to need to be evidence if you're going to have to prove damage by proving the presence of the virus on a structure or, you know, the interior. I think what I think is going to become interesting is the statistical modeling. I was just reading an article, uh, I think today, where they've done a study in Santa Clara about where they had the antibody tests. So they were able to identify folks that had had the virus and, and didn't know it. And they concluded that there was something like 50 to 80 times the officially confirmed cases of actual cases. You know, and that science is really obviously developing and nobody knows for sure. But I think if it'll depend on the circumstances a bit, you know, if you operate a casino, for instance, and have 200,000 people in your casino on a weekly basis, I think proving that the virus was present on surfaces in the casino should be pretty easy. If you operate a, you know, knitting shop in a rural area, it may be much more challenging to, you know, if you have five customers a week and the owners don't have it, you may have a lot harder time proving the presence of the virus. It'll be fact dependent to some degree if, if that's what you're trying to prove. But I think the threshold issue will be establishing that it's a lot more widespread than just the confirmed cases. No, I think that's a, a fair point. Well, look, it's rare that I have two heavy hitters on the same podcast. So I, I, uh, I want to ask you really a, a genuine open uh, question. As, as somebody who shifted from litigation to mediation, I, I do think all mediators have to be somewhat optimistic and persistent in trying to assist the parties in uh, achieving an agreed upon resolution. I think all mediators have to be realistic as well. And there's certain claims that are difficult to resolve because they seem on both sides to be bet the company claims. And so I think the insurance industry is sincere when they're saying, look, we didn't intend to cover pandemics. And if we do, that's going to bring us all down where the individual entities right now filing suit are saying the same thing. So on one hand, I think it makes it a very difficult scenario to try to come to a settlement. One thing that I've been and obviously, it's uh, you know in my interest to uh, have this opinion. But one of the things that I think can be helpful, I think on some cases that look like they are going to lead to expert discovery, they are going to depend a little bit on the science involved, and that right now different parties are making bets on how well that that can develop, is to potentially seek mediation a little bit earlier than maybe you otherwise would have, you know, hoping that you can get some type of business resolution. But even if you don't, to have clients at least interact with a, a neutral party to see whether it impacts or, you know, how hard their position is before the parties really go expend what they're going to expend to litigate. So I like to say that I try to make myself available early in a case and that sometimes uh, that can help. You know, one thing that's impacted uh, my practice, I, I can't say I've done it yet, but next week I'll be doing my first online mediations. And I don't know, have you guys been appearing in court 
or doing uh, any type of online activities. I mean, that's one of the the main impacts I think of our profession because I'm talking to you from my uh, from my kitchen right now. But I think in light of the, if that becomes more prevalent, I think it might make things even easier to even do a half day just where you bring in somebody to see whether your client can take a time out and think about the big picture of where a case you know might be heading now like i said i'm a realist so i'm not saying that i expect that you know we'd be able to resolve these things right away but it's an open ended question to you all what type of things do you think you know a mediator could do that might be helpful. I'm always trying to to learn from my guests and you guys have been very informative on the insurance side. So any thoughts on resolving these type of disputes? Because the hard ones are the most satisfying ones to resolve. And I think right now you read articles in the newspaper and there's passion on both sides, which uh, definitely creates some difficulties in settling. But just wanted to know your thoughts about possibility of like early mediations. Uh, you know, the second question there was, have you guys had to do more Zoom type of uh, meetings? Well, I'll try to answer, although I, I, I guess my answer is not as optimistic as yours. I share your appreciation of early mediation. I, I found it useful lots of times in lots of contexts. But this one, I think the insurance companies are in the, view themselves as being in the position where if they pay one of these claims, they're going to have to pay them all. And they're going to tenaciously decline to do that until something changes that mindset. So I think everybody on these are either going to be litigating it for a bit or sort of waiting and seeing how things develop. You know, there's legislation being proposed in, you know, half dozen or more states. The federal government might get involved at some point. Certainly some court decisions will be issued and we'll give people clearer milestones. But I think right now I wouldn't want to be the mediator trying to convince the first insurance company to pay the first one of these claims. I think that might be a tough sell. I would agree with that, with everything you said, Frank, including the no insurance company wants to be the first to pay it. Another thing that crept up, I I presented a webinar yesterday on trying to hit all the lawsuits that have been filed. And one thing I noticed is a large number of these suits are getting filed before any claim has actually been submitted to the carrier. And then some of the suits are being filed before there's been a denial. Now, there are some lawsuits where there has been a notice of claim and an, and an immediate denial or a fairly quick denial. But I, I typically involve a neutral in every property insurance dispute I, I have. But the couple key components are make sure the claim is completed and make sure that the carrier has taken a, a position on the claim and that any any additional information that's asked for is has been provided or looked for and confirmed it's not there. And then the other aspect, and I'm sure you've seen it too, both of you, that's useful in mediation is sometimes to jump to the measurement of damages. And sometimes there's there's a lot of a lot of room to negotiate over there, assuming that you can get pay, people past whether there's coverage or not. The makeup is a big one here. If it's civil authority, that's going to require some detailed analysis as to how people be acted before and after the order. There's room there, but I, I also probably would not be wanting to be the one convincing the insurance company to acknowledge that this falls within the insuring agreement in the first instance. Sometimes I think that, including myself, we all want to be out there in the front appearing to have some view on on the matter and we're sort of chasing each other without 
talking about anything concrete yet. And there are some claims that have been presented and denied, but much of what I see is not people talking about those claims, but rather talking about something theoretically. I do continue to say, let's just keep looking at the details, look at the evidence. And I would, that would hold true in a mediation as well. Well, no, I, I definitely appreciate that. Like I said, I, uh, I go into these type of disputes as recognizing that there's lines in the sands that are likely to be drawn, and it's going to be very difficult to try to get people to um, move into the center. But frankly, that's what mediators try to do. Well, I think I've taken a lot of your time. I've got one more question for either of you. Both of you came highly recommended. Many of my other guests were people that I, I actually knew. I run across your names, but we hadn't crossed paths uh, professionally. So it's not like we knew each other. So I really do appreciate you uh, taking the time out. But let me ask you, there's no wrong answer on this. So have either of you actually listened to any of my prior podcasts? <laughs> and, and I, I, you know what? I actually started to just maybe a month ago but then I got distracted. Okay. That, that, I, don't, I don't commute any longer. Well, I know. You so know what? Pe- I, people I are telling me that. what you do when you commute, but since I sit in my basement every day, I don't turn them on. Oh, that, that's fair. I'm in the same boat. And that's fine. So I think I want to end this. Uh, you know, I'm going to bring you guys together. You're on the opposite side of the V on, on different cases. Frank, I think you had mentioned uh, when talking about how a policyholder could satisfy a burden of demonstrating physical loss, some different statistical modeling uh, and experts. One of uh, the things I have on my website, and I play a little bit a game with every contestant, has to do with the fact that doing settlements... We are trying to predict the future. We deal with probability. And one of the things that I have found in my 26 years of practicing law is, you know, there's a lot of lawyers who really are pretty bad at math. You know, probability isn't something that's, you know, they necessarily wanted to deal with in in school, but it does impact, I think, the way that we look at the value of the case. I would argue as a mediator that sometimes it's very hard to get parties off of their initial assessment of a case. Now, in this particular situation where we're talking generally, I I think it's very understandable that, you know, one side wants full recovery and one side says it's not covered. So it's zero. So there's not a lot of nuance in terms of coming up with an evaluation that you'd be willing to live with for settlement. But if there was, then there's some probability that takes place. So I like to play a little bit of a game and I'm going to bring you guys together. Frank, you're going to be our contestant and Mark, you're going to be his counsel. This is a a variation off of uh, Let's Make a Deal and Monty Hall. So, Frank, there's going to be three doors, okay? Behind two doors on Monty Hall, he had goats. Behind the other one, he had a car. On my website, I do a riff off of it where there's two outcomes, where there's painful and expensive litigation and one good outcome where there's a a reasonable settlement that allows somebody to move on with their life. So we've got three doors here. The rules of the game are that after you choose a door, I am going to show you one of the doors with a bad outcome, and then I'm going to give you the opportunity to switch. And Mark is going to counsel you uh, on that opportunity. So there's door number one, door number two, and door number three. Frank, do you understand the rules? I think I understand the rules. All right. Are you ready and willing to play? 
As wait, 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 pretty wait, as I'm going to be, yes. Okay. You understand the question, Frank? <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. His lawyer making sure uh, I, I didn't get an admission out of there. But uh, all right, Frank, door number one, door number two, or door number three? Uh, all right. Mark is telling you door number three. Are you going to listen to advice of uh, counsel? I think we're, we're, in, we're of like mind. Okay. Now, it's very weird. This is episode four, and everybody has picked door number three. I don't know what, <laughs> you know, it's a podcast. Nobody can see it. It must be the prettiest door. All right. So you have door number three, and I am showing you that behind door number one was a goat. So you now have door number two, the door number three that you selected. And I, because I am such a nice podcast host, I am giving you the opportunity, and you can discuss this with your counsel, Mark, to switch from door number three to door number two or to stay with door number three. What do you guys want to do? Mark, I'll defer to your advice. I don't see a reason to switch. Get free counsel. All right. So yeah, Mark, I don't see a reason to switch. So does that mean... Yeah, so this is crazy that it's come out the exact way for all the times that I've done this. So everybody picks door number three. Everybody sees there not to be a reason it's a 50-50 outcome to switch or not, and everybody stays. So the reason I play this game, and there's a longer article on my website. I have uh, something at showwolfmediation.com. There's a tab that's called Resolution Roulette. And it will go into more of the math on this. But actually, there is a reason to switch. When you originally picked door number three, you had a one in three chance of being correct. The rules of the game said that I was going to reveal one of the two bad outcomes. It didn't say I was going to randomly pick. So actually, there was no reason, even though there's only two doors remaining, you actually have stayed with a one in three chance of being correct because unless you picked correctly, and we'll agree that you only had a one in three chance of being correct when you made your first selection, if you selected a goat, I, by the rules of the game, there would be a goat and a prize remaining. By the rules of the game, I'd have to tell you where the other goat was. So two out of three times, I am revealing to you where the prize is. So statistically and mathematically, the proper move is to switch. Doesn't mean you're going to win, but it does mean that you double the likelihood from 33 to 67%. So Bain's uh, theorem is a way to look at probability with future events, but I use that to show a couple things. Not only do people not appreciate, and you guys are both, you know, very smart guys and I joke with, you know, there's very smart attorneys who I've been working with throughout my career who make some wrong assumptions on valuing cases. But it also shows that there's a psychological standpoint. People always stay, even though they think it's a 50-50 thing, because apparently the worst thing in the world is to pick correctly, and then to switch off of it. And I do think that that impacts how people look at complex litigation. If I early in a case, you know, made some decisions, even after maybe the judge has 
indicated that maybe he's not buying my argument or she's not buying my argument. It's hard for me to get off of that. So I use that game to show a little bit of fun, uh, you know, from probability standpoint. Like I said, there's an article on, on the website. I should say that some people have told me that I don't plug you know, showwolfmediation.com is uh, the website. The podcast is available on Apple, TuneIn, uh, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. And so, uh, Mark, Frank, I definitely appreciate you helping out. I don't know if you have any uh, insights about the Monty Hall game. I can tell you that you played it exactly like every other person to date, which is kind of weird that it's always door number three. I That I have no mathematical explanation for. Well, I guess we uh, proved your theory that lawyers aren't great at math. <laughs> well, I do appreciate you guys being good natured and playing along. And I do appreciate your insights on the important issues that we discussed today on, on COVID-19. And I hope one day we'll actually be able to leave our houses and uh, maybe... I know, Frank, you're in Portland. Mark, you're in uh, California. I'm here in Texas, but maybe our paths can cross. Yes, I'd, I'd like that. I would like my nice talking with you guys. Anybody. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thanks a lot right. for organizing. No, thank you very much, guys. Stay safe and good luck with everything uh, on both sides of the V. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll be trying to follow along and uh, seeing how you guys are doing. So thanks very much. And uh, so we're going to keep the door open uh, a crack. But for this episode, episode four, we're closing it on opening doors to Resolution of Mediation podcast. I'm your host, Steve Showoff. Thank you very much. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.